Hello, and welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. I'm your host, Fred Dews. In this episode, you'll hear from Neil Ruiz about foreign-born students in the United States, who they are, what they're studying, and why it matters. But first, let's find out what's happening in Congress with Governance Studies fellow John Hudak. With the legislative branch on recess, you wouldn't think anything is happening. But he explains how the do-nothing Congress can be good for both Republicans and Democrats heading into the 2014 midterm elections. With Congress in recess, the the real question that arises is, uh, what have they done for the past year and what types of effects might that performance have on the midterm elections that are coming up in November? And essentially, at the end of the day, Congress has done a whole lot of nothing uh, in the past few months, in the past year, and really over the course of the past Congress. And most people think of that as a problem. But in reality, the do-nothing Congress helps both sides of the aisle. Uh, For Democrats, they get to go home to their districts and, and point at Republicans and say, we have a host of problems in this country, economic, political, foreign policy, the the problems run the gamut, and the Republicans are doing nothing about it, and that's why we need a change. That's why you need to elect Democrats, and that's something that gives them the opportunity to run on. But the do-nothing Congress also helps Republicans, especially now that we're getting through the primary season and moving into the general election. What a do-nothing Congress allows is for Republicans to avoid taking positions on hard issues, on immigration reform on the Affordable Care Act or the details of the Affordable Care Act, and on a host of other economic issues and budgetary issues that Republicans would much rather kick down the road until after the election rather than to deal with up front. And so so in that sense, Republicans, as frustrating as it may seem to pass nothing, are getting real political benefit out of that. At the same time, however, the, the do-nothing Congress, though, Though by any metric it is true, and and it's a Congress that's done very little, um, and very little effectively over the over the past few years, did manage to do a little bit more in the past six weeks. They passed uh, reform for the Veterans Affairs Department, which is huge. It was bipartisan. It was something that the public wanted, the president wanted, the Congress wanted, and also veterans groups wanted as a means of responding to the recent scandal at VA. And the the Senate passed several um, judicial nominations that the president had wanted. And at the end of the day, the additional benefit for Republicans is that while they've done nothing on domestic policy over the past several months, the conversation right now is focused on foreign policy with problems in Ukraine, with problems in the Middle East, in Gaza and Israel, and, and as well as in Iraq. And so any challenge that they might have received from from a lack of performance on domestic affairs is surely going to be outshined by what, what's going on abroad and the focus on presidential action within that context. And that's what's happening in Congress. And now, the interview. Over 800,000 foreign-born students are studying in the United States at institutions of higher education. Where are they coming from? What are they studying? And how can U.S. visa policy be improved to take advantage of this talented group? To find out the answers to these questions, I spoke with Associate Fellow Neil Ruiz from the Metropolitan Policy Program. He's the author of a soon-to-be-released report on this issue. Neil, welcome to the podcast today. Uh, Thanks for having me. You've done a lot of research on foreign-born students in American universities and colleges, and you're the author of a forthcoming report on 
the, this phenomenon. Um, tell me about your interest in this particular topic. Well, this is a follow-up. Um, I did a report uh, two years ago on H-1B visas, and I thought that would be great to look at actually foreign students since um, we're pretty much the biggest destination of foreign students in the world. Um, and I was able to be granted a, actually access from the U.S. government for this great data set of confidential information that's never been uh, mined through. That's why I wanted to do this report. And you mentioned your previous work on H-1B visas. That's not the same kind of visa that foreign students use to come study here, is it? No. H-1Bs is um, for for those who want to work in the United States. And a lot of foreign students actually do try to get those visas to stay on and work in the United States. But the F-1 visa, which is for foreign students um, studying at full-time in universities and colleges, is, is, is a different visa. There's no cap on that. Um, unlike the H-1B visa. I want to get into some of the very interesting uh, data about uh, foreign-born students in the U.S. first, but I want to drill a little bit more into your methodology because I think it's really interesting. You you are accessing a um, never-before-used government data set. How did you get the data, and what is the data? How, do, how does the government collect data on uh, the foreign-born students here? So after, after September 11th, um, the U.S. government wanted to have a better monitoring system of foreign students in the U.S. So I, I knew of this data, um, and I did a FOIA, what they call a Freedom of Information Act request to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. And they granted me, you know, I asked for the f confidential home addresses of every student from 2001 to 2012, where they're going to in the U.S., what exactly they're studying, how much money, you know, is being charged, um, and then I asked, wanted to know where are they being employed after they graduate. Um, so I was able to get all that wonderful data, and that's what this new report will be um, showing. Uh, what are some of the top-line data that we're talking here? I mean, how many foreign-born students are here in the country? What is the trend? What are the top countries they're coming from? That, that kind of thing. Yeah, my, currently there's about 800,000 um, international students in the United States which is about 21% of all students studying abroad in the world. So we are the global hub of academic training around the world. Um, I think it, this has grown a lot since 2001. Um, to, September 11th obviously affected a lot of foreign students coming to the US. So we were at the very low point of only 110,000 foreign students on F1 visas then. But it has, that has grown um, tremendously over the last um, 11 years. What are some of the top countries of origin of these students in the U.S.? So the top country of origin is China, um, and that's we have also India and um, South Korea. Those are the kind of the three main ones. Um, so China, India, South Korea, 21% uh, of all students in higher ed who were studying abroad are in the United States. What are these students majoring in? What are they studying? And also, are they in undergraduate programs, graduate programs, what are they studying? So you have a lot of wide variation, um, but most of the students but by far are studying in the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, which is STEM fields. Um, that's the most popular kind of field of study. But the single most popular major by foreign students is business management or marketing. So these are two majors that are actually quite um, important if you want to think about it. I mean, not 
I'm not saying all other majors are not important, but it's these are critical kind of for economic growth. So they're not here to study literature, history, even international relations. They're really focused on STEM, business type majors. The large majority are, but there are variations by countries, which the paper will show. And there's some interesting um, kind of uh, differences by country and by origin. I want to be sure that, that listeners understand, and, and please uh, fill me in on this. We're not talking about the, the dreamers or the DACA kids or the, the children at the border who are on our company that are, that are very controversial today. This is a, a separate group of individuals who get a specific visa to, to do a specific thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So this is very different from what's going on in the um, climate, um, political climate right now, especially at the border. What's really going on, these are legal um, migrants who apply you know, they, they get into a university, they go through a whole system through the U.S. government, um, and they're monitored, actually, while they're here um, so to make sure that, you know, they're worried about terrorism, you know, activities by students. And so these are high-skilled students, um, you know, those who are going to be graduating, those that are being highly sought out for after uh, they graduate as well. And, and they're in... Not only bachelor's degree programs, but also master's and PhD level programs? Yes. Th- this paper will actually show kind of a focuses on bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees. Why do you think there's been such a, a large growth over the last, what is it, 10, 11, 12 years? I mean, from 100,000 something at its low point to over 800,000 today. Well, the, the US, you know, United States, we are still basically the top destination for you know, research and development in the world. You know, we're the top, you know, if you look at school rankings around, global rankings around the world, there's many of them. And you see that a lot of them show that most of the U.S. universities dominate the top universities around the world. So I think that's what's attractive about America. Um, Secondly, you do have some countries actually really pushing their students to study in the U.S. Saudi Arabia and Brazil have government programs that are funding full scholarships for their students to study in the United States. Um, and Saudi Arabia is interesting because you really saw a huge growth um, of, of students and, uh, and by the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. And why do you think these particular students are so drawn to the STEM uh, and business fields? And I think when you add it up, it's, it's maybe pretty much two-thirds of the majors are in those fields. You know, these are kind of important fields. I guess when you th- think about it, the way the globalization has happened in the world, a lot of countries, you know, they're exporting, importing to to various um, countries, and and a lot of um, technology is moving so fast. That's why the STEM fields are so important, as well as business, because because technology moves so fast, you need to understand what are the different business models, trade, marketing, that that change. So I think. That's why we see a huge um, kind of attraction on into the STEM and business fields, especially by foreign students. And also, is it because that's where the money is? I mean, yeah, that's also probably where the money is as well. But then, so do these students, do they get their degree and then go back to their home country and start businesses there? It depends. I think what we see is that sometimes we see, there's a lot of work that's been done that shows that a lot of students, you know, because of our U.S. immigration system, are not able to stay in the U.S. Um, 
Again, this goes back to my previous work on H-1B visas, where they're limited really only to 85,000 per year um, that come into the U.S., that could stay in the U.S. Um, and that's not just for foreign students, it's everyone who's applying for temporary work or to work in the United States. Then, you know, countries want, you know, their students after they graduate to come back there. You know, China's a growing country. India, these are the BRICS countries are, are emer have emerged and are big markets um, and are competitive, competitive in terms of labor markets. So many students from there who are studying here will probably look at options. Should I study in back home or should I stay in the United States? So uh, if they stay in the United States, do they have to get an H-1B visa? If they stay in the United States, there's several options. Um, their F-1 can become what, what they call, could be work authorized. They could get a OPT, which stands for Optional Practical Training. And this is what they usually get approved before they graduate. And it will give them authorization to work for one year to 29 months if they got a STEM degree. And then after that, usually they would, if they find an employer, they'll apply for a um, the employer will apply for an H-1B visa. But as we know, this year, it <laughs> they ran out in one week. Of the H-1B um, Of the H-1B. There were over 40,000 above the cap that got denied um, the visa. So it becomes harder, actually, after they graduate to stay because of the current U.S. immigration system. Let me make sure I understand that the, the H-1B visa program uh, is available to... Um, a wider range of applicants than just uh, the, the foreign students who come here and get a degree. I mean, these are people who perhaps are already um, operating their own businesses um, in China and in India and in Saudi Arabia, and they're all competing against each other. And then you get your bachelor's degree as a young 22-year-old student from China, and then what do you do? So the H-1B visa is kind of like a catch-all visa for all high-skilled immigrants. It includes those who are coming from abroad temporarily who didn't study in the U.S. It includes um, those you know, foreign students who are studying in the U.S. Um, it includes those who were on OPT and trying to stay longer with their employer. It includes also those who graduated and are starting their own business in the United States. I mean, currently they reserved 20,000 of 85,000 visas for graduates of U.S. universities. In my previous research, I've only seen 26,000 total. So 6,000 above that 20,000 are former foreign students who studied in the U.S. Now, I want to get to some of the policy recommendations I know that you have because it, it bears directly on this problem. But let's, let's talk real quick about kind of the, the direct impact to the, the places where students are attending of, of having foreign students studying there and getting their degrees there. Yeah, this um, so the most obvious um, economic benefit from foreign students is the tuition and you know living costs while they're studying in the U.S. I mean, this is a, has a direct impact to the university as well as the local economy around you know the metropolitan area there. So I think that's the direct effect. Um, but then you think about after they graduate, you know, as an alumni, they're Basically, this is their new hometown, the place, their first experience in the United States. They know the businesses. They have probably a network that they built through the university, through the local economy. And they're basically assets that could serve as bridges between their hometown abroad and their new hometown in the United States. 
So I think that that's another asset or benefit that they bring to the local economies in the U.S. and their home countries abroad. And so that, that feeds back into the theme of globalization. Exactly. Now, I've, I've seen uh, in, in your work and other places this concept of brain circulation. Can you explain what that is? This is a third concept that's been um, proposed by um, that Annalise Saxena of UC Berkeley kind of um, wrote about before we had the concept of brain drain, which is, you know, when a foreign student comes to the U.S. studies and stays in the United States, they would be considered a loss to their home community abroad because they're not going back. Then you have a concept of brain gain, where if you know they studied here, got the skills and networks, then go back, then it's a benefit to their home community abroad. But then you have this new concept of brain circulation. Students, foreign students or foreigners are actually coming to the U.S., going back and forth between their hometown abroad or home country abroad and the region economy here and doing business transactions. And this goes with the way global businesses work now. Manufacturing, Silicon Valley. You have R&D being done you know, in, for a silicon chip company in, in Silicon Valley. It's being produced in Shinshu Tech Park in Taiwan. And then it's being shipped back to the US or to other parts around the world. So if you think about it, foreign students you know, kind of play an important role because of their mobility and especially the mobility of high-skilled immigrants when they move back and forth between different regions around the world. So it sounds like a phenomenon that uh, not only do university leaders themselves need to pay attention to because they're administering the system and delivering the education, but also uh, metropolitan officials and regional leaders ought to be paying attention because this sounds like they have a stake in, in this kind of um, brain circulation. Yeah, exactly. I think local leaders should be and state leaders should be aware of this because it's very important to, you know, leverage the foreign students who are already there. They're they're growing, you know, they're homegrown in their own local communities and they have a home abroad that could that they could um leverage for connecting to global markets abroad. Let's talk about then what some of the challenges are. What are the kinds of policy recommendations that you're that you are looking at in this uh, in this particular issue. So, as we know here in Washington, um, Congress again didn't do its job on <laughs> on immigration reform. But what's interesting on foreign students, they've had bipartisan agreement and agreement on both houses in the Senate, which was passed last year, and the House had legislation written um, that was in the committee that would allow foreign students on F-1 visas to go directly to a green card if they're, if they're um, sponsored by an employer. So that was going to be a faster way instead of going from F-1 foreign student visa to OPT to H-1B, then to green card, it would have been a fast track. But that's on hold since nothing's happening. But now President Obama is thinking about doing executive action. And of course, a lot of the focus is on the border and and um, and DACA, uh, the children of immigrants, and that's the big crisis right now. But when it came to foreign students, George W. Bush actually did executive action on foreign students on the optional practical training program on OPT. He's the one in 2008 who extended STEM students who graduated in the U.S. to go from 12 months in OPT to 29 months. So I don't know what's um, in the mind of President Obama, but this report 
we have the numbers here and they could look into this and see, you know, what are the possibilities if they do further extensions, maybe for all a subset of them for doctorate degree holders or master's degree, they could, there's a number of ways that the administration could figure out how to extend, given that there's no action in Congress. Uh, who else would you like to uh, be reading your report and, and kind of acting on your recommendations? I think it's, v especially for metropolitan leaders, it's very important for them to, to understand university officials, as well as economic developers, um, that they're aware of the, these assets, you know, foreign students themselves, they're, they're assets that actually can connect, um, you know, the local economies to the global economy. Now, I've asked you a lot of questions about your, your report, your research. What am I missing? Is there anything else uh, that you think is important about understanding this particular issue and, the, and, uh, and perhaps a path forward for reform or better policies? I think that you know, Congress has been grappling with a lot of issues on immigration reform. They've failed again, and maybe they'll be doing something in the future. But I think that policymakers need to catch up, actually, to how the global economy is functioning. Um, this report will reveal, you know, connections that are made by foreign students. Globalization has been a lot about exports, about foreign direct investment, about trade of goods. But then we have people, and people are mobile. And you know, we've had a dated immigration system that hasn't been reformed in a long time. So how do we catch up there, the way we are trying to catch up with trade? Because uh, people are very important. You know, you can't have goods. You can't have movement of goods or products without people. Uh, well, Neil, thanks for your time today. Uh, I, I look forward to the report, and I think it's going to be uh, pretty eye-opening for a lot of people. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. To learn more, visit brookings.edu slash metro. Finally today, I'd like to thank Zachary Kulzer, our stupendous editor and producer, Elena Saxena, our awesome researcher and intern, Jessica Pavone, who designed our cool logo, and Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan for so capably managing the podcast on the website. You can subscribe to it on iTunes. Send any feedback or questions to bcp at brookings.edu and visit us on the website at brookings.edu slash brookingscafeteria.